This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to a one-off episode of Architecture Culture, which was broadcast as a clear spot on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and in tonight's show, I'm looking at representations of the built environment on film. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Barbican Cinema curator Alex Davidson about their forthcoming season, Return to the City, a showcase of six unusual and not often screened films about life in the city, made between the 1950s and the present day, from all parts of the globe. Before that, I'm looking at two films that depict humanity's relationship with more claustrophobic interiors. Later in the program, I'll be talking to Eric Schultz, the director of a new thriller called Minor Premise, about how a scientist using technology to try and unlock untapped aspects of the brain inadvertently gives himself multiple personality disorder, with each personality emerging every six minutes. However, to start off with, I'm talking to the writer and director of a new sci-fi film called I Am Ren, a movie about a family who apparently have an android as the mother of their children and housekeeper of their home, who is sent to a mental health facility when she begins to question her own identity as a human or an android. I Am Ren depicts a fantastical but believable world in the tradition of such TV shows as Black Mirror and Humans, and mixes cool, brutalist interiors and exteriors with the torment going on in the mind of its lead protagonist. I'm discussing the film with its director, Patricia Rishko, who at the time had not transitioned and so was referred to as Pyrta in the interview, and lead actress Marta Kroll, who plays Ren. Pyotr, I, I thought it was a, a terrific film. It's really thought-provoking. There are all sorts of issues uh, that the film brings to the audience. Ideas in terms of its science fiction aspect of how androids might interact with humans, but on a more general basis, looking at how um, an abused woman or a woman who feels kind of gaslighted might deal with a family relationship how people are kind of locked away in institutions, all sorts of things like that. Um, and you wrote the story for this screenplay first as a novel before turning it into a film. Um, so were those the kind of ideas that you always wanted to deal with, both in the book and in the film version? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I always wanted to deal with uh, a very difficult subject matter, which, uh, yeah, after we, we have seen the film, so there is gonna, not going to be any more spoilers now. Hmm. But I uh, um, uh, always wanted to deal with uh, the subject matter of growing up in a family, which is touched by uh, mental disease, you know, and... Uh, um, I have always loved sci-fi, so it was the natural choice. But I wanted to tell about this uh, subject matter in a uh, less um, obvious and less literal way, you know. Mm. So um, sci-fi was a very good genre to uh, draw the viewer in and um, um, draw the viewer into uh, the world of uh, the character without uh, him knowing or uh, uh, her knowing about it, uh, what she's actually watching. And we are actually watching the inner world of the character, you know, and uh, we are watching her um, uh, inner mind working and her um, 
psychology, you know. So uh, I, I always like to call this uh, kind of sci-fi because someone named it in Trieste, actually, <laughs> inner space sci-fi, you know. Mm. Uh, I really love this term because it um, d describes exactly what we are dealing with, what I wanted to do with this movie, you know. So um, uh, tell about a character uh, without the audience knowing what you are actually wa uh, watching until the very end, you know. And mm. uh, that's actually uh, to put the viewer or the audience in the shoes of uh, someone who is sick, you know, and who is dealing with all this isolation and all this um, um, uh, being lost in this uh, labyrinth of a mental disease, you know. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. So th th this is this was the starter of uh, the project, actually. And uh, Android seemed like a very good metaphor for actually dealing with a woman who wants to function perfectly in this world, you know, but can't, you know, mm. because of her disease, you know. is not able at all, you know. So, yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, and Marta, it's a it's a hell of a part to be given. There are so many different aspects of the character that you have to deal with on screen. First of all, in terms of the audience reaction, us accepting her as an android, but then also all of the very human emotions that you have to uh, display on screen. Like I said, the character is somewhat gaslighted to a certain extent by all the people around her. We don't know if it's her or her husband that's been abusing the child. So all the way through, you know, we have to feel, uh, you know, emotionally engaged with you, but also you have to be distant. And that must be a very fine line, you know, to tread as an actress. Yes, that was very challenging. And uh, I think, you know, the the the, the whole uh, process of uh, preparation uh, to, uh, to this movie and uh, was was very intimate and we were looking with Peter um, the new approach to Android uh, mm. we, we I, I saw a lot of movies uh, the, we, we've seen a lot of movies with Androids yes and we ask ourselves what's the difference what's what is different about her and uh, we discovered one day that maybe it's uh, maybe she's more uh, in an emotional way she's more human uh, being than than a human being, so we were. Oh, and when I thought about it like this, I thought, oh, it's it's very interesting. Uh, so, you know, we we were trying. I was not trying to to play uh, or to look for for the disease in her, but for the android. So, as Peter said, uh, that was a great metaphor, and that was. Also, it helped me to to be her. So I was thinking, okay, so what what kind of android is she? What uh, is, does she feel anything? I mean, she feels more, or uh, in what ways she's a human? She's human. So that was very interesting for me, and the whole process of shooting also it was very interesting because actually I think we were um, touching things and discovering during uh, this process of shooting so I think we we I felt that we will touch some new ideas but I didn't know what it will be exactly like so that was also very interesting working with Peter because we were you know shooting very emotional things but we were also trying to 
mm, uh, to shoot the same scenes in different ways. And we are looking for different uh, kind of her being, you know, of, of her uh, behaving, of, of her of her um, feeling. So that was quite challenging, but also very, very interesting uh, work for me as, as an actress. Mm. And it seems at the moment, the whole sort of theme of humanoid androids and how they may re react to humans and interact with humans is very much back in terms of film science fiction. There's obviously the sequel to Blade Runner. There's the TV series Humans, which is also being remade in China at the moment. Um, what do the two of you think um, is the attraction of these kind of stories? What's going on in sort of, you know, 2020 to make this kind of story relevant again? Pure I have to unmute myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Uh, I think uh, uh, what makes it attractive, at least for me, from my point of view, is that uh, uh, these kind of stories allow us to go a little bit out of our box, you know, out of our box of being human and look at ourselves uh, and um, uh, analyze ourselves in some kind of way, which uh, and ask us very basic human questions. You know who who we are and uh, what is I and what is consciousness and uh, all the sorts of stuff, which uh, is perfect for uh, dealing with uh, the subject matter when you are dealing with um, uh, AI. So uh, I believe it's uh, very very relevant and it's becoming more and more relevant as. Uh, we, get, we are getting uh, androids like, for example, Sophia, and mm. uh, the AI is accelerating in a gigantic way right now, the algorithms. So um, I think we are going to be forced to ask ourselves what is human uh, often more and more in the coming decades. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, mm -hmm. I, I think we, 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 I agree with you, Peter. And I think also that, you know, this sci-fi, is becoming nowadays so it's it's closer and closer so we we start to leave the the the, the technical stuff and everything is going around us it's so amazing and, and changing so quickly our mm -hmm. our life that i think we are living somehow in a future i think um, thanks to covid uh, and to this pandemia we we jumped in uh, 10 or 15 years uh, uh, ahead. So it, it means that we, we, we somehow, um, we are in it already and it, uh, it accelerated, you know, the time. Mm -hmm. So I think it's closer and closer and we are really living in, a, in times that, I don't know, maybe in one year we will have uh, androids in our homes uh, like uh, Ren or <laughs> Sophia doing some stuff because it's it's really going faster and faster in my opinion mm. yeah yeah and i mean it's so right on what marta is saying about uh, covid accelerating this virtuality of our life you know so just look at how we are doing dealing with the festival and mm. how life of uh, almost uh, everybody on this planet has changed dramatically in the last year so uh, uh, so yeah this is an enormous acceleration yeah mm. exactly mm. So you've got some questions coming in from the chat. Um, oh, sure. Chris asks, and I guess this is applicable to both of you again, um, mm -hmm. how much research did you go into regarding uh, mental health behaviour? Did you mm -hmm. interview or talk to any people who had mental illness mm -hmm. or, or any sort of mm -hmm. things like that? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, this is uh, this is why I wanted to tell the story, you know, because uh, um, I I didn't need to do that because I lived through that uh, from in my childhood. You know, my mother was sick, and that's uh, the dedication at the end of the movie. So uh, so it's very much a personal story, and how um, uh, I try to actually um, find ways for myself and for the public to empathize with people who are very difficult to live with, who are dealing with something they can't control, who are uh, also um, stigmatized by, by the environment, by the people around them. Mm. So yes, I want to, to touch upon all the subjects of that. So uh, it was very personal in this way. Yeah. So I, of course, I, I, I refreshed a lot of stuff because this happened a long time ago. And I met uh, several psychologists uh, as research afterwards but um, i wanted to be a personal movie and uh, i wanted to tell it how i thought my mother was feeling and how lost she was and uh, how uh, i wanted badly to for the public to understand that and for people who see this film you know yeah how people like that feel mm. and marta in terms of your performance you know did you observe anyone with mental illness or do any research um, so first of all, when I got the script of Peter, I felt that it's really great observed and that's really, uh, it seems to me very real what he uh, he wrote. And, uh, and second uh, thought was that I, I have someone very close to me and in my family that suffered uh, from a mental illness maybe it was not um, schizophrenia, but some, something close to it. And I, uh, I could observe uh, him and when I was a child. And uh, that was quite traumatic at that time. But now I, I started to, um, to remind myself all all the things I was observing, yes, this this person and 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 just I I, I could feel it. But after that, I I was not. Um, I, of course, I was reading a lot uh, about uh, this illness. But uh, one thing I knew for sure is that each. Um, uh, each person that is uh, that is sick, uh, mentally sick, each case is different. So, of course, there are some things that are uh, quite similar or maybe the same patterns of uh, getting deeper and deeper in this illness, uh, some steps, yes. And But I think Peter was very conscious of it and uh, it was in the script. Uh, some breakdowns of her. Um, so the only thing was um, that I, I that was really challenging to me is is to remember that I'm um, hmm, that uh, that I play or even I don't say I uh, I'm approaching to the person that thinks that she's an android. So that was really uh, something I could catch and uh, and keep and uh, don't let it go uh, because i i felt uh, with my instincts i mean with my actor's instincts that that's 
that that this is this case of this illness i mean because th this illness is uh, is different because she i don't i don't know any person that thinks that she or he is an android uh, but it could be maybe there are some people like this in in hospitals or or somewhere so why not um and then you know when when we were um, working on it we we were trying to approach but i think it was mostly on peter was someone uh, i i like really much to work with him because he really felt uh which way is good or, or maybe not good right or not right which which is which which way helps us which way is this and i trusted uh, him and his uh, intuition and 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 uh, and i hope it's we we uh, mm. we, we managed to do it <laughs> oh definitely yeah i thought it was very powerful um there's another question from the chat. Uh, Candace is asking, um, how long did it take to make the movie? Oh, so it was a very, very long road, actually. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, I wanted to make uh, maybe not exactly this story, but uh, we were, um, uh, this, this story had uh, some iterations and uh, there was a, a couple of stories before that. So if you take that into account and fighting for, uh, uh, for the money and to get uh, the development and uh, to get it made. Uh, I mean, uh, all in all, I think it's it's about 10 years, you know. So, so of course, the production was 30 days uh, and it was a uh, really amazing uh, experience. But, um, yeah, but it's a very long road to actually get this movie made. And uh, yeah, But it was so much worth it, you know. So um, to get it out, you know, and uh, to see the reactions and... Uh, yeah, so um, uh, that's, uh, I think this per perseverance uh, really paid off. So, yeah. Mm. Whereabouts did you shoot the film? I mean, it seems like some very amazing locations you went to. Mm -hmm. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, that sort of tree-lined road, um, which we see going towards the Institute and then the Institute itself and the home they come from. They're all very kind of atmospheric um, places that you chose to shoot in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, uh, this is not very far. For, this is all uh, located in Poland, but uh, we are very lucky because uh, 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 we took a long time to, for the pre-prod and uh, for the pre-production, uh, and we um, saw a lot of places, and uh, we wanted to get this right, you know, and the locations. And we knew that. Uh, the budget was limited, so we had to have great locations, uh, which um, spoke a lot about the characters, you know, and uh, uh, we were very lucky that we found some uh, Scandinavian-styled uh, architecture, which I always wanted because I grew up there, which I always wanted to show um, one part of uh, the isolation of the character and uh, like you say the roads uh, and the time of year was also excellent because um, usually winter in Poland isn't that beautiful right now but uh, we were very lucky uh, uh, when we were shooting you know with the snow especially in the last scene that was like a god-given gift to <laughs> us uh, how beautiful it turned out because I never imagined it could be like that but uh, it started to snow and uh, we went through all these phases of sun, snow and everything. And yeah, so uh, some magic happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the 
the way that you make a low-budget film seem futuristic is obviously done with all sorts of subtle ways, like the barcode on your foot, Marta, and you know the some of the costume design, which seems both futuristic and sort of brutalist at the same time to create this kind of otherworldliness. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of aspect of the design of the film? Peter? Marta? Uh, or, well, uh, Uto, well, either of you, Marta. either of you. I mean, you know. Okay, okay. Okay, <laughs> okay. do you want to yeah. say something, Marta, or should I? Um, I, I, I like very much the costumes because <laughs> it was uh, very simple and very powerful at the same time. And we, we were looking for some special shapes, I think. Like, like she's, she's, um, she's an android, so she, she should be kind of um, uh, very, I don't know, stick a person or, or, or um, not moving a lot at the beginning. Yes. Mm. So I think also uh, what was great and special about the costumes that it was uh, changing during the movie, during it was changing with her, with her emotional state. And the same with her, for example, uh, at the beginning was very you know, very um, beautiful hairs, mm. and then it was kind of um, you could feel, and I, I felt it that she survived something. She was going through something very emotionally uh, difficult, and uh, and it worked. I think all this and the atmosphere and um, and the places and. Uh, and the winter that helped us. So I think everything worked, helped us for worked for for this uh, story. Mm. And you know uh, about the sci-fi design and like like you say the barcode and uh, all sorts of these very subtle things. I think uh, uh, from this movie uh, uh, there was a lesson to be learned that uh, this minimalism. Uh, which uh, which mostly was also limitations, you know, budget limitations are actually good things, you know, because mm. uh, 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 then you have to make sci-fi which is uh, in the head, not not on the screen, not visually shown, but in the head of the viewer. And I hope we achieve that. And that's uh, that's something which is very interesting, I think, personally. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you spoke earlier about how you were thinking about other portrayals of androids in movies. Um, there's another question in the chat for Marta. Uh, when you first got the script, and at least for some of the movie, when you realised you were going to be portraying an android, what was your first reaction to that? Did you think about any other people's portrayals, or did you want to kind of just see how you could embody it yourself? Oh, f first time I uh, I wrote um, the script, uh, I was like, "Wow, wow, that's great!" I mean, "Wow, this is something interesting," you know, for for an actress. And also, um, um, I felt this. Uh, I, I saw this second level and more levels of of the meanings of of this movie. And that was really interesting. And I have um, 
when I read uh, scripts, scripts, and for the first time, my first uh, attitude to it and uh, my first reaction is very important to me because either it's either it's it attracts me so much that I can't stop reading, either not, either I'm thinking, oh, okay, why? Uh, and I know that. Uh, this story is really interesting and the movie will be also, uh, I mean, the reaction of people probably will be a, a little bit the same as, as my reaction, first reaction or not. Hmm. So, uh, so when I first read, I think, I don't know if I read first the script or uh, the book, Peter, I don't remember. Is it because also Peter sent me uh, the novel that he uh, wrote uh, in English, Panacea, Panacea, Panacea. It's, it's available, I think, on Amazon still. <laughs> you can read. And it's a little bit different, but it's very interesting. And, uh, and I really like that it's somehow futuristic. So I like the story like this. You know, when now when people are making, in Poland, it's better and better and there, there are really some really great f movies right now and films uh, but mostly we have tv series which are you know from now which, which are somehow interesting but not so much so this uh, script was uh, something that i've never seen also in polish movies i knew that peter is uh, a Polish director, but uh, he has this uh, uh, spirit, uh, Scandinavian spirit. So that was also very, very attractive to me uh, because I like everything that is from Scandinavia. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everything, maybe not everything, but, but I like, I like very much. Mm. Mm. And obviously, in it being a Polish movie, there's the temptation to read into it perhaps some connection with the current political situation in Poland, that we have a right-wing government that is trying to curtail people's freedoms and has this very kind of idealised idea of what a family should be. And your film is very much commenting on, well, what if you don't fit into that box? You know, how do you get on with that? Was that intended at all or was it just a coincidence? You know, um, uh, no, it was not intended, but I, I have a script which uh, was written uh, about half a year ago, which is so much about that, you know, which is so much about the system, which uh, uh, exactly what you say uh, uh, puts uh, puts this like uh, impossible chains on uh, this uh, hetero uh, male uh, um, uh, fantasy of this right wing which how a family should be you know and uh, uh, all this uh, hate which is going towards both women abortion and lgbt community mm. it, it just so um, uh, it just uh, uh, lacking so much human uh, humanship in that so uh, so yeah the new script is much more conscious about that and uh, really attacks that but uh, this this story was more uh, i wanted to tell a story about uh, more a personal story rather than a macro story you know like you say yeah mm -hmm. and yeah. um I, I'm, I wouldn't expect you to give a definitive explanation of the ending of the movie but the ending is quite ambiguous um 
And when I watched it, I thought of at least three ways of interpreting how the ending might work. Uh, one is that she's had a complete mental breakdown and is fantasizing mm. about the three characters leaving. Uh, another is that she's compartmentalized her android self. And even though we see her leaving, there's the possibility that the other version of her is in a cage inside her mind. Or possibly it really is the science fictional ending and they have left with a newer android copy of, of, of the mother and wife. And I suppose any one of those and indeed any other explanation uh, that people might have would be equally valid. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, the ending was very much intentional, and <laughs> I don't, uh, I, I don't think I am going to give away any answers <laughs> because uh, uh, that's not the point, actually. But uh, I can just say that uh, it was important for me that, um, uh, like I said, all this sci-fi um, uh, and open ending, open endingness of this movie was to uh, leave us with, or um, it was. Uh, the key to that was actually her uh, mental disease, you know, and uh, mm. her inner world and how she might feel, you know. And uh, I wanted to, for us to feel like that, you know, uh, like a person who is going through this mental illness and uh, and being uh, so much divided on uh, how it ends, uh, I think is a good thing uh, because people like that feel, uh, feel their world is upside down and they can't get a grip on what's real and what's not, you know, so, mm. yeah. And I suppose for you, Marta, with that ending, it means you get to have both simultaneously a happy ending and a sad ending because there's two of you simultaneously on the screen. Wow! Yes, yes, that 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 was uh, yeah, that was strange and amazing uh, thing watching after afterwards uh, after after uh, the movie on the screen. But I think uh, you are right. I mean, all endings are possible and you can choose your own uh, way you want to interpret uh, this this movie. And I think also there can be more and more levels and in interpretation. Uh, for example, for me, something that I discovered uh, after shooting the movie, after post-production, it was... Um, it was, uh, I discovered that this movie also tells the story of, of women, mm. uh, of, of, of me, I mean, of my need to be perfect, uh, perfect woman, perfect wife, uh, perfect actress, perfe perfect, every and this, uh, tension that is, um, nowadays and we can feel it especially in poland i think that you we ha you have to work you have to prove that you are great and every day you have to you know be fit and uh, and smile and this is unhuman i mean this is not possible because we are not perfect we are not machines we are not androids and that's great uh, because if you really want to achieve something that it's not possible you can have some mental breakdown or something that you know it's not possible so this is also about this about our situation as as uh, women mm, very much so brilliant well uh like i said i thought it was a terrific movie and it was fantastic that we were able to um, close the festival with your film um Thank you so much and look very much forward to the next project that uh, you work on um, and hopefully see it uh, at a future Sci-Fi London. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you very both to you and to Marta and to the organizers of the festival and to the public for seeing the movies. We appreciate it deeply. So. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for this invitation and mm -hmm. for this Q&A. It it's such a great pleasure that we can be together uh, personally, but we are right now. We spend together <laughs> exactly. uh, the evening and this is great that you really managed to do this festival. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. For more info about the film I Am Ren, please go to tinyurl.com stroke I am Ren movie. That's tinyurl.com stroke I A M R E N movie. On the same site, you can find more info about the novel that I am Ren is based on, Panacea, which is available as an ebook from Amazon, as well as Patricia Rishko's forthcoming film, A Child Made to Order. In this thriller, which is currently in production, the story sees an investigative journalist's search for a missing woman turn up illegal gene therapy treatments, and then she has to choose if she wants to reveal the story publicly or fulfil her lifelong desire of becoming a mother. As such, the film builds on I Am Ren's previous looks at technology and motherhood, and hopefully will be available to see shortly. I Am Ren was screened at Sci-Fi London, the London International Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival, and you can find more info about the festival at sci-fi-london.com. The second of tonight's interviews was also recorded at Sci-Fi London last autumn, and I'm talking to director Eric Schultz about his film Minor Premise, an intriguing thriller about how a scientist, using new technology to try and unlock parts of the brain, accidentally gives himself multiple personality disorder, with each incarnation in his mind being unlocked every six minutes, giving a frightening aspect to sanity and timekeeping reminiscent of Christopher Nolan's early films. As with I Am Ren, Minor Premise is another claustrophobic thriller located in a domestic house whose atmospheric interiors, including a science lab basement, and various rooms dotted around the house provide the backdrop to the drama set in the film. The movie also takes us outside to more corporate and university-based locations and sets its sci-fi thriller tropes against these familiar and unfamiliar settings. As with the interview you've just heard, my Q&A with the director was recorded after a screening at Sci-Fi London, recorded over Zoom in front of the streaming audience. I really enjoyed the movie and it reminded me of loads of other kind of sci-fi stories and films from um, over the last hundred odd years, starting with, I guess, something like Jekyll and Hyde, uh, and then including sure, yeah. more recent things like Flowers for Algernon, The Terminal Man, even Disney's Inside Out. I mean, I wonder if any of those were kind of in the mix when you were coming up with the uh, the plot for this film. Um, definitely. De you know, Je Jekyll and Hyde was obviously a huge uh, early reference but that also has sort of inspired a lot of the other other references that we made uh actually inside out i think i thought of it when i saw inside out but inside out has been a funny comparison that people have been making recently because um uh because obviously tonally there is so so completely different but but deal with the same uh themes of you know these different parts of you uh these these different emotional parts these different behavioral parts 
ultimately define what you do and how and how you are and, and, and who you are as a as a person. Mm. I mean, in terms of preparing for a film like this, uh, all of the kind of drawings of pathways in the brain, they seemed very convincing. Uh, some of the ways that different aspects of our personality are manifested in, I guess, psychosis, you know, that seemed very convincing as well. What kind of research did you do in terms of neuroscience and those sort of areas? So I, uh, I studied psychology at, at, in university, um, not specifically in neuroscience, though. I was much more sort of focused on, um, you know, social psychology and, and uh, uh, like positive psychology, psychology of teams and organizations, things like that. Um, but you know, you know, you obviously get a, a dose of neuroscience, but the real contributor to that was my, um, uh, it, the script was written by myself and two co-writers. And one of them, Justin Moretto is a, is a neuroscience by neuroscientist by trade. Um, he went to John Hopkins. Um, so he brought a lot of the authenticity in the film, um, both in terms of the, the dial, uh, the minutia of that, but then also when we were on set, he brought we 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 had made him essentially our on-set um, uh, science consultant and put him in as a part of the art department and uh, specifically working with the art team, our production designers, make sure that all the equipment was very authentic and um, uh, and then you know enlisting the help of uh, like Columbia University we shot it in New York City mm. so we got Columbia University to donate a bunch of their um, you know n neuroscience department gack that they weren't using that we could then use on set um, and then in terms of like uh, all the computer interface and things that you see you know the, the program that uh, that Ethan uses throughout the movie is something called MATLAB, which is actually the, the programming software that neuroscientists use. And we got permission to hmm. use that. And then um, Justin and along with uh, my other co-writer, Thomas Torrey, they were the ones that actually uh, were off screen manipulating all of the, um, uh, the diagrams and the brain graphics and, you know, they were they were the ones that are, were practically doing uh, all of the computer, um, uh, all the computer stuff off screen as as Sophia the actor acted it out. So, mm. Okay. So it was a re it was a real team effort in terms of you know making sure that we were being as we knew we wanted to make something that was very rooted in actual science and so it was a real team effort and and leaning on those collaborators uh and leaning on each other to to make sure that we were adhering to that throughout the throughout the whole process mm. and you made a a film called premise as a short before this one and i haven't right. seen the short but it seems that that is more based on mysticism rather than science so i was wondering if you could talk <laughs> about the uh, the connection between the two no, so, well, what actually, it was interesting because I had never directed anything before. I had produced a lot of movies before Modern Premise. And, you know, uh, through the development process with Thomas and Justin, you know, I, I, took, I took this on as the director. And so we had to, of course, prove that I knew what the hell I was doing behind the camera, you know, not just the, the producer, you know, uh, 
Citibank making sure all the logistics were figured out. So we we had already had we were already very very deep into the script of minor premise, and uh, we set out to you know the the decision was basically we're going to make a short teaser uh, that's a proof of concept um, mm. uh, using essentially the bit. Uh, where uh, Ethan gets the notebook and he has the phone conversation with his mother and it sort of is the moment of sending him down the, the you know, uh, through the looking glass. Um, and uh, that's what we, that's that's essentially what the short became, um, oh. a, a, an even more sort of experimental tonal version of that moment in the um, And that's what kind of got us a little bit of traction for, you know, being able to get the rest of the project off the ground and prove to people that I knew what the hell I was doing, like I said. <laughs> nice. Um, so we've got a couple of questions coming in from the screening, uh, from the chat in there. Um, uh, Sophie Fest uh, said that she thought the um, the ending was particularly chilling. And indeed, it's left ambiguous about oh, nice. which which version of uh, Ethan is now in control of his body. I mean, I, presumably you don't want to give a definitive answer, but I guess you wanted to go for an ambiguous ending that leaves the audience questioning. Well, yes, and, and that's... Well, it's a little bit of both, uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. The, um, it's, it's, it certainly is meant to be ambiguous, and, and, and you know, I, I love the idea of people leaving the theatre and saying... Um, you know, having that debate about, well, you know, did, is this section eight in control or did Ethan just pick up smoking again? Um, and, and it really leading to the thematic point of like, well, what's, what is the difference between the two? What is the true Ethan? And, um, and, and therefore like, what is, you know, what is the true version of all of us, right? We're all sort of these amalgamations of, light and dark, hot and cold, right? So um, that certainly is the, the thematic point of, of the ending. The one other thing I will say is that we are developing a sequel, huh. um, unsurprisingly titled Major Premise, <laughs> that um, that kind of explores that question. We, we've, we have a story that we really want to tell, and it's all from, you know, Ali's perspective, um, and it picks up right where the first story leaves off, and it's a bit of a... Uh, uh, a Hitchcockian kind of suburban paranoia thriller where she's left with this question of uh, who is this, who is this man that I'm now married to? Is he who I thought he was? Is there something more nefarious going on? So, um, you know, we'll see if we're able to eventually get that off the ground, but it's something that would be, I think a lot of fun because it also is, while it's still sci-fi, it is um, in, in a way a, a very different, kind of filmmaking toolbox in mm. reference than this film, which is obviously a total roller coaster ride to be able to do something that's much more a pure psychological thriller, um, sort of like marital thriller from her perspective. Mm. Yeah, well, I, th I think it's really interesting where you have movies with sequels that are a completely different genre, but with the uh, the same characters. It's happened a couple of times, and I think it in a way it kind of not only gives the cast something really interesting to do but also show that stories you know that when we look at real life that stories as they develop don't stick to one genre they change as life goes on you know yeah i think that's a really good point 
Mm. Yeah. Um, so Chris has asked in the chat, uh, would Eric have acted differently in the same situation if the time periods had been longer or shorter? Oh, man. So that's... So we had a huge... This was a huge thing about the construction of it. And, you know, we had our... We, especially Thomas and myself, uh, we spent an inordinate amount of time with a spreadsheet that was all the different sections at the top, all of the hours uh, down the the bottom, and really trying to connect the dots between, uh, create a real narrative logic for why he's on the bathroom, you know, Mm. why he's in the bathroom, like taking a shower, talking to his mother, and why he's waking up on the couch, why he's running through the street, all trying to connect these threads of what the different sections are doing that is that are that are guiding him across this path. So to answer the question, we we did go through some different iterations, some different logic um, games of what is the right ordering of the sections and what is the right uh, number of sections in order to sort of achieve what needed to be achieved narratively. Mm. And, you know, I could tell you exactly sort of where, where we really stretch the logic, um, and, and where it's more concise. But what we found is the way that after all the iterations that we went through, this was the one that it, it had to be structured this way in order to be able to tell the story and the events of the story, the way that it is like section eight had to be sec- psychotic had to be section eight or else it threw off. It became very implausible or even more implausible, for example, that he would never have run into Allie. Mm. Whereas if he's section eight, she's always running errands during that time and coming back and seeing euphoria in section nine. So mm. there were a lot of things like that, that, um, that we had to think through that became a little bit of, you know, narrative, uh, we had to fit sort of narrative contrivance into plausible logic in order to make the story work. Mm. And there's uh, another question from Sophie um, asking about the casting of um, Satya in the lead, how it's really yeah. unusual to have um, a South Asian in the lead of uh, an American movie. Yeah, that was, that was all, uh, that was all Satya because we, when we did, so Satya and I worked together on the short, um, but, and before that, uh, Ethan was not, uh, was not Indian American. He was, I mean, he was, he wasn't any ethnicity specifically, but I mean, his, his name was, it was, it was Ethan Cobb, which was going to be a bit of a send off to, you know, Christopher Nolan films, Mm. but, um, definitely for the better, it was, you know, we, we changed that because through the casting process, we saw a lot of different actors of, of all uh, different ethnicities for the short. And Sathya really stood out as like embodying the intellectualism, yet sort of brooding intensity of that character. And through that and through working with Sathya on the short, um, Ethan Cobb became Ethan Kochar. So there mm. you have it. And I mean, I thought he was terrific. I mean, it's a hell of an ask for an actor to really put them through the grinder as you do in that movie. I mean, at, at the very least for his, uh, for showreel, you know, he can now say that he's played, you know, nine different parts in the same movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was fantastic. And, I, and, um, and the last thing I'll say about casting him is, you know, he was a recommendation from uh, a mutual 
friend of ours, a guy named Alex, uh, actor named Alex Bro, who has a small cameo as the, uh, the, the, the bartender in the, um, in the, you know, in the bar scene mm. towards the beginning of the movie in, in the bank, in the banquet scene. Um, so Alex recommended Safia and, um, and that's how we got connected. And, you know, the thing that I talked to Safia a lot about in terms of embodying the character and was that we really wanted to create something that was and each section needed to be based in one character as opposed to each, each section being a caricature of, um, of these different emotions. Uh, we tried to think through how a person like Ethan, how does a, like, wh- where's the real motivation for anger in a person like Ethan or, um, or anxiety? Where would that actually be coming from that is, that is specific to one per- person as opposed to you know, um, you know, we always sort of talk or compare, you know, compared to like James McAvoy, which who's brilliant and split, yeah. who is having to embody, you know, an old woman and then a young boy and all these things and really stretching that way. This was much more about, we were always thinking about it in terms of turning the dials up down on, on one character, as opposed to having to embody a bunch of different characters. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously when you make a movie like this, it's going to be relatively low budget. And so to um, save some of the um, the finance, you need to have a limited number of sets that you're going to use. Um, and as such, this film is mainly set in one house and, you know, the, the science basement. But that, that actually does lend the movie a great kind of sense of claustrophobia, which I think very much works in its favour. I appreciate that. Um... And we, well, so the one thing, and you and I were talking briefly about this uh, right before the start, was the, you know, we shot this movie before the pandemic. So the uh, reveal that he's in his basement laboratory lecturing to his class uh, in sort of a makeshift classroom via Zoom was something that that we came up with um you know, before we were before that, before that was the norm. My producer recently basically said, "Like, do you think anybody even like bats an eye when they see that?" Because <laughs> they used to, you know, it was supposed to be this sort of like uh, uh, silly reveal, but now it's just sort of like the way things are. Um, but uh, the the other thing that I'll say about that is it was it became something that was nice um, uh, from a production standpoint, because it limited locations. But the other thing narratively that was fun about it was, you know, this movie plays in a lot of, in a lot of tropes, um, a lot of mad scientist tropes, Hmm. um, and a lot of sci-fi tropes. And what you, what we realized was all of these movies, they always start the same way. They, they always start with the professor giving the, you know, giving the lecture to his classroom, right? It's like, in, in enemy and arrival in, in all of these sci-fi films, that is a, it's a trope of how do you explain the, the, the concept of the film? Well, you, you start the film off by having a lecture scene. And so we became very conscious of that and sort of like, Oh man, we don't want to, um, how can we make this more interesting than that? There was, there was a period of time where we almost like scrapped the lecture scene because we were, afraid of not embracing that 
uh, trope, we wanted to try to get away from that cliche. And, um, and instead, we were really excited when the solution kind of to make it set in his basement and think about what does that say about Ethan and his sort of obsessive claustrophobic mindset that find him in at the start of the movie. Hopefully that says something about him as a character, whereas he was lecturing, you know, in a, in a, in a large classroom as, as a normal, not damaged person would. Hmm. The end of the film suggests that uh, Ethan's experiments have been successful and it's going to kind of go mainstream. Um, are you going to kind of tackle that in the sequel as well as doing kind of a house invasion movie, how it's affecting the real world outside? Yes, very much. Okay. Um, and yeah, in the sequel, there, like, I want to, I mean, there's a lot to draw from in the past couple of years. There's, mm. You know, there's there's politically things to sort of draw from, um, and you know, I think, yeah, to, to without going into too much detail, um, you know, when you find yourself like what 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 happens to these characters, what happens to Ethan, um, if he was to find himself sort of at the pinnacle of success and sort of uninhibited by his other uh, his other sections, you know, and 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 if he was just pure ambition where hmm. where would that take him and where would that take Ali is one of the things that uh, I'm sort of excited to explore and in terms of the technology um, you know believe it or not uh, in earlier of, of minor premise we <laughs> there was also even there was a there was a true time travel element to hmm. it you know um so we got into physics a bit, and we realized that we were already biting off enough uh, with the, the density of the script. Um, so that has the sort of things that we wanted to explore, um, pushing you know ideas about uh, you know clairvoyance and, and memories and how mm. like ac- accessing that. Um, are getting pushed off into the sequel. Mm. But it all sort of circles back to the first film in a, in a really fun way, too. Nice. So, again, I'm hoping that eventually we'll be able to make it. Yeah. Um, and there was one shot I particularly liked where Ethan is sitting on the stairs down to the basement and the uh, the shadow is smoking and he isn't. Um, that was a lovely kind of touch um, of almost how his subconscious is manifesting in the real world even before he senses it. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad you liked that. That was such a, that was a happy accident. That was not planned. Huh. Um, we, uh, we had another, you know, we, that, that shot was actually used in another scene later, but what we realized, my DP actually pointed out when we were shooting the sort of little moment that you know there was that the light was really cast a shadow and on the spot we we sort of came up with this idea of like oh we'll be able to composite this and um and, and use the shadow in contrast to whatever ethan is doing so we had and we and, you know this was sort of the start of it but we then did it at other moments we sometimes would just ask Sathya to 
cycle through the sections for us. Um, and so that's what he, that's what he did. We just did a take where, you know, okay, now, you know, do anger, do anxiety, do section eight, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and just would roll. And that's through that we were, we realized as, Oh, Oh, we create this little fun effect. So mm. yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you like that. Our little man <laughs> shot. Nice. Um, and it occurs to me, I, I misunderstood Chris's question. He was actually asking, what would you do if you found yourself in that situation with the repeating oh, well, with six minutes? Oh. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the thing. I think if that was really happening, it'd be, I mean, we tried to capture how intense it would be, but just mm. the thought experiment of it would be, would be so, I think it would be even more intense. I think I would just have a, a massive breakdown <laughs> i mean well here here's the one thing i would i would liken it to um uh i did you know i played football and uh i did suffer from uh several concussions during my course of my football career and sometimes i would think about it in terms of that because have a concussion um you know when you have that sort of brain damage i i remember one time in practice you know, you don't even realize it when it happens. Only a couple of minutes afterwards that you realize that you've had a concussion where you just, it's its as if you suddenly come to, you realize where you are, but you can't remember what just transpired to get you there. And so uh, I had a, so, so actually I haven't told anybody this, it's kind of funny, but like I kept going up to my best friend on the team and saying, Will, I have to, I have to tell you something. And I keep I keep remember, like I keep, uh, I keep forgetting where we are, you know. And then he's like, "Are you okay?" He's like, "No, no, no, you know, I'm, I'll, I think I'm okay." And then I'd go wander off and do the next drill. And then five minutes later, I'd come back to him and say, "Well, I don't know if I've told you this before, but <laughs> I, I'm having a hard time remembering anything that that just happened." So I suppose it would be a little bit like that. It, I, I guess that's the closest that I've gotten to that sort of cycling. Yeah, nice. The thriller Minor Premise by Eric Schultz is available now as video on demand and DVD and Blu-ray from Amazon and all good websites where you can get hold of movie entertainment. As mentioned in the interview, the director is working on the sequel Major Premise and hopefully we'll see that film soon. My interview with Eric Schultz was recorded after a screening of the film at last year's Sci-Fi London Festival, which returns again this autumn with premieres of new science fiction and fantasy films. For more info about the festival, please go to sci-fi-london.com. In the last of today's interviews, I'm talking to cinema programmer Alex Davidson, whose upcoming season of films, Return to the City, sees the Barbican Cinema reopen to the general public and presents six films from around the world and from different decades that show familiar and unfamiliar aspects of the city on film, bringing a richness of urban life to the screen in movies that rarely get a public airing. So would I be right in thinking that you started at the Barbican in 2019? No, I, I, I joined the Barbican in 2018, so I was lucky enough to get, I guess, about a year and a bit worth of uh, what we call arts programming at the Barbican, which is our, our special events and our partnerships, the film festivals. And then, yes, in March 2020, um, we, did the, we closed for the first time for the first lockdown. And then I've had uh, little windows of opportunity to show films in our cinema since then, but it's been very unpredictable. So we're hoping, hoping, keeping everything, uh, fingers crossed, this will be uh, plain sailing from now on in terms of remaining open, but we shall see. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, I think one thing that's always been interesting about the Barbican cinema is that obviously, you know, in order to make a profit, you have to uh, show recent releases. But at the same time, you always seem to do these mini themed festivals that touch on various topics. So I guess mm-hmm. as uh, a cinema programmer, it's nice to be able to balance those two things and come up with ideas for these uh, mini seasons of films. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the new release schedule is, is I mean, we, we have three screens and the new release schedule is still a unique Barbican offer. We do show films that you wouldn't necessarily see at Modian or at a, a, another uh, multiplex um, place. And our audience is very responsive to that. But yes, the arts programme alongside it, I think, works very well. So we're a sort of mixture of programming styles. And yeah, we're really excited to, to continue. Mm. So this um, return, to the, return to the city season is kind of like your opening statement uh, for the for the reopening of the cinema where did the idea for this uh short season come about i think we've been hoping to do something around cities on film for a very long time uh, mm. i think cities uh lend themselves very well to exciting and interesting representations on the big screen i think a lot of the great cinema classics you often have the city as a backdrop mm. and i feel it now very much seemed like the right time for return to the city i think those of us who live in cities, work in cities, enjoy being in cities. This is a, a space that's been denied us for uh, a very long and unpredictable and very concerning amount of time. Uh, it's been a very tough time for all of us. And for those of us who really thrive on the community that cities give you or the, uh, the vital vitality and the buzz and the excitement of being in these spaces, it's been, it's been particularly, it's been, it's been a challenge. And I feel as well that there are so many different communities within the city. And I think that's something that, again, not being a part of those, not being able to uh, mix with people within your community and get the, the, the support and the, the camaraderie, I think, is, is very uh, sad. So we felt that a, a Cities was a good starting point for our first major arts programme upon our return. Well, I used to live in London, and whenever I come and visit these days, although obviously I've not really been back for a year, um, you know, it, it's kind of always a shock uh, when you see buildings that you used to be familiar with have gone and been replaced by something else. And there's always this kind of sense of change going on in cities. Um, and I wonder if that was one of the things that kind of fed into this season, that you have films from the 50s, from the 60s, from the 70s and the present day. Um, that not only are these films about cities being captured on film, but they're films about cities at a particular point in time being captured on film. I think that's definitely true. I think each each film we're showing is definitely a product of the time it was made. It's a, an almost unique time capsule of a certain mm-hmm. part of the life of the city. Um, one of the earliest films we're showing, Free Time, shows New York, uh, from footage filmed in the 1950s by uh, Manfred Kirchhoff. Uh, sorry. So what, uh, one of the films we're showing, Free Time, uh, is a compilation of footage fr- filmed in the 1950s by Manfred Kirchheimer, who is a bit of a, a major figure in uh, American documentary, particularly in regard to uh, city symphonies. And you see these really interesting and uh, very valuable shots of streets in different neighborhoods in the Upper East Side, in Washington Heights, in Queens, in uh, Inwood. Um, and it's the city you don't normally see on screen. I think that's a very important theme within the program. It's this mm. idea of show, even when they're a familiar city like New York or Paris or Las Vegas, we didn't want just a, a, 
a depiction that a postcard like depiction so there are films like Roman Holiday or Emily which I, I think are both very good films um, mm. and I know Emily has got its detractors I think I still think it's fantastic but I, I we wanted to show films that showed a really different side to the city and so with New York you don't normally see people just going about their daily lives in the 1950s mm. with kids playing stickball and people reading the newspapers or washing windows which when, when you describe it doesn't necessarily sound very exciting but when you actually watch it in the visual space particularly with this amazing music accompaniment uh, sort of mixture of jazz and classical it really brings it alive it's a real sort of visit to the past and New York's a city that's under constant change and constant uh, rebuilding and yeah it really does capture that uh, that snapshot in time. Mm. Well and particularly because those kind of city films where it's just relatively abstract shots kind of set to music um, where the editing creates a rhythm as much as anything else you think of them uh, very much as being kind of like a European style of filmmaking so it's interesting to see an American take on the genre yes I mean city symphonies are a strange uh, unusual genre I mean they're often very they're kind of associated with the silent era of 1920s mm. when they would often play up the sense of visual splendor accompanied by this very you know live or um, music often classical but I think the way that city symphonies have been molded or changed over the years is a very interesting thing to observe and I think I think free time is a really good example of that there's also a film I'm showing called Lima Screams mm -hmm. which uh, again Peruvian films are so hard to see in the UK Lima isn't a city that UK audiences will be used necessarily to seeing on film mm. and I would I call it a city symphony it's not and it's it's focused very much on the music and the street art of the street musicians and the artists who work in the city it's got this incredible <clears throat> sort of mix the score is a real mix of styles so there's punk and there's electronica there's a political song and the visuals you, you almost sort of feel like you're flying through the city while there's music it's called lima screams but while the music sort of bellows around you it's a very very interesting unique experience and yes i think uh, so that would be a Peruvian, i think take on the city symphony whereas free time would be a, a north american one and i think it, yeah i agree i think it's a really interesting thing to witness yeah well and particularly i mean thinking of the uh, peruvian example uh, with people still not feeling that they're able to travel abroad it's going to be a nice kind of travelogue experience as well if nothing else Yes, I mean, definitely to an extent. I think Lima Screams is probably one of the more, I think it's a film that will definitely invite people to want to check out Lima. I mean, I, not, not all the films necessarily showing a, 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 a wholly positive version of the city. We're showing a film called Nationality, you know, sorry. Let, <coughs> sorry, I need to clear my throat, that's why. Um, we're showing a film called uh, Nationality Inigre, which was is an event curated by Awa Konate from the Culture Art Society. And that's a film from the 1970s by a director from Mauritania called Sidney Sokona. And mm. it's very much around, it's, it's, very, it's very much around the experience of uh, West African people who migrated to Paris uh, during that time and the experiences they received in, in, in the city. And these experiences almost wholly were, were often very negative. They were living in very poor conditions, mm. uh, everyday racism, very blatant racism too. Um, and I think while Lima Screams invites you to, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily completely, it's not a tribute to Lima, but there's, in fact, there's political protest you see in the film. It's, it, it does show the excitement of the city, whereas Nationalité Immigrée 
there are scenes of them checking out the Eiffel Tower from afar and the Arc de Triomphe from afar, but this is very much about their lives on the outskirts of Paris, the Paris you don't see much on film. Mm. And uh, it's a very, very powerful essay film that uh, is a real rediscovery. I, until Ala suggested it, it wasn't a film I was familiar with, actually, but it's a very interesting uh, take on the city. Mm. So it sounds like then one of the kind of things that you were thinking about in curating this season uh, is it not only being cities on film but unusual uh, takes on the city on film the perspective of people who aren't normally included or parts of popular cities that you don't normally see on screen either oh completely there's a huge diversity of storytellers in this season and I feel again we wanted to give we wanted to give a platform to films that show sides of life that aren't normally seen in cinema, either by the filmmakers themselves, ideally, or by the subject matter. And you definitely get that with, with nationality uh, immigré. Uh, you also get it too with uh, Queen of Diamonds, which is a, it's a, fe- a very interesting feminist experimental film from the early 1990s set in Las Vegas. And I think the minute you say Las Vegas, you immediately get these images of uh, glitz, of glamour, but also seediness. And there's plenty of seediness in in, uh, Queen of Diamonds, but it's a very interesting representation of it. And it's this experimental cinema isn't something I'm necessarily an expert in myself. Uh, I've seen some very good experimental film and it's not (laughs) a great experimental film. And this one really, I found extraordinary. I, I have never seen it on the big screen, actually. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it in that space. But it's there's a scene where it's, it's almost like a film noir where she's trying to track down her husband, but in a very mm. sort of half-hearted way. Uh, <laughs> it's a very interesting story. And then halfway through, you suddenly, she, she's a casino croupier. And halfway through, you suddenly get this 17-minute sequence of her just doing her job in the casino. And I think mm. that's amazing. Um, sequence which I won't go into too much more detail because I want people to go and see the film Mm. but I think it really shows the lives of working class people working in Vegas it's not the the glamorous show people it's not the gangsters it's the people who are actually doing the work and I think that was a really important thing to get across as well. Mm. You spoke about how one of the films was brought to your attention by one of the other um, programmers presumably at the Barbican with a, a season like this, there are obviously you know thousands of films uh, that you could choose from. How on earth do you winner it down to a manageable number and then choose the ones that you're going to show? Well, actually, um, Awo is, is an external curator. She actually pitched okay. it to, uh, to show it another time at the Barbican, and we just felt this was such a good marriage of the city, so mm. we chose to work with that. But you're right, the rest of the films were chosen throughout the team. It wasn't just me. Mm. It was okay. my, my colleagues throughout. I mean, I... <laughs> I wish you could see the spreadsheets and the discussions we had <laughs> when we were putting this together. It was it was a real labour of love because we we're all fighting very passionately for the films that we really wanted to show. We mm. definitely wanted to show films that you couldn't see very easily elsewhere. One or two of them that you might be able to find, you know, on, on a on a website. But I think we wanted films that really you need to see in the big screen. Um, we all came with very different perspectives, uh, and yeah, getting it down to to six was was tough. Uh, but we did get there in the end. But yes, we've had, I'll say, I, I don't want to predict how many meetings we had, but it was a lot. So yeah, it's been a bit of a labour of love for us. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, that aspect of seeing these films on the big screen. I mean, one yeah. of them, I think it's the, the 1950s New York film. It's a new um, uh, kind of digital remaster of it. So presumably, yes. you know, even if you were able to get hold of a copy, the version you're showing is, uh, you know, a higher quality print than has previously been shown. And similarly with the um, the Chinese film uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, 
Uh, you mm. can get that on shiny disc, but the 3D version doesn't seem to be available. So again, the cinema presentation will be a lot more immersive than anything you could find at home. I mean, Long Day's Journey Into Night is, I've only seen that film myself in 2D and it's wonderful in 2D. I don't mm. want to, you know, it's, it's, it's such a remarkable, Again, I, I'm careful of not giving away spoilers, but it starts off <laughs> as a film noir and then halfway through, and this isn't a spoiler because it's, it's a well-known thing about the films, it suddenly goes into this hour-long 3D sequence, which I haven't seen in 3D. I've only seen it in 2D and it's amazing in 2D. But in 3D, uh, my colleague actually, um, Tamara, programmed this one. She said, this is just, you have to see it in 3D on the big screen. And I think, it, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's going to be one of the more popular titles in the season because I think people really want to see that spectacle that cinema offers. But yes, it's it's a really unique chance. I think it's very hard to see in 3D unless you see it on the big screen. And uh, it's a film that really... And when you think of 3D films, it's normally something like a Marvel film or it's a, it's, it's a, it's a thriller or a superhero film or something that, that ways you don't expect it in a film noir from China. That, that, that's just yeah. not a, a genre you normally see depicted through that mode. So yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to that screening too. Mm. Well, I, you know, I think it's strange. You're right that more people haven't used 3D uh, in an experimental way. There's a, a Jean-Luc Godard film uh, where at one point the image that you see in each eye goes in a different direction. So in order to not get a headache, you have to close one eye and then the other. And then you're almost editing the film yourself. And then there's yeah. um, uh, there's a documentary about the Lascar uh, caves as well that's in 3D. And you think this is a format that can really kind of bring a new texture to cinema. And it's, it's such a shame that it is only kind of genre movies who normally use it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's changing. I mean, the examples you've just said, are, 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 yeah, you're absolutely right. There are, there are some people who will take that risk. I don't know the costs involved in making films <laughs> in 3D. I suspect that may be a factor in it. And I saw a Korean film, I think it was Korean called A Fish, about five or six years ago at the London Film Festival. And that's, that was had a 3D sequence where a fish just suddenly starts talking to the screen. And it, it's quite <laughs> a shock when you're not expecting, if you get the films in 3D and suddenly you, you're confronted with this. It's a very interesting medium to use that can work very, very well. Mm. And escapism isn't the right word, but thinking of the idea of, you know, coming to a cinema and losing yourself, you know, in another world, in another place for an hour and a half, two hours. I mean, that feels also kind of subtly one of the themes of this season. I mean, going to the Barbican in and of itself actually feels like you're entering a different world to the, the rest of London. All of a sudden, you know, it's kind of unified architecture. It's a bit more peaceful and, you know, you're away from the crowd. So it's kind of like a doubling almost. You enter into the Barbican, this kind of unique space, and then you enter into the cinema, into the Barbican, and enter another kind of unique space within that. I mean, nothing nothing can compare with watching a film in the cinema, and I think any cinema lover would say that. I, I, you know, watching a film on video on demand. I mean, the Barbican, we have our own VOD service, Cinema on Demand. We've got some amazing films on there. You know, I watch Netflix, I watch, you know, Amazon Prime. Um, but watching a film on a computer and on a TV, it's still an amazing experience, but it, can't, it never can compare. And I think being in a space with other people, uh, sharing the experience together is, is just such a unique one that we've all been starved of. Uh, watching a horror film with an audience watching and, and screaming along with them or watching a comedy and laughing along with the, the audience around you it's such a it's such a special part of the viewing experience mm. um I, and i think you know i remember watching oh anyway this, yeah <laughs> i was going to criticize a comedy i'd seen recently but i won't do that but yes i, I completely agree and i and sometimes watching a film 
at a film festival where it's a UK premiere and you have the people who made the film there in, in the space. It's uh, there's such a sense of event as well. It's something mm. that, yeah, that only cinema can deliver. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you spoke about how uh, the kind of whittling down of these films down to six was a collaborative process with other uh, kind of curators. Um, mm. As such, were any of these films completely new to you and, you know, just a, a lovely surprise to come across them for the first time? Until our suggested nationality immigre, that was not a film I was familiar with. I hadn't heard of it, actually. And when I watched it, that one really, I'd never seen anything quite like it. I, I think for people who, there's a Med Hondo film called Soleo, which got a restoration a few years ago and explores similar territory. But I think Nationalité Immigré really has a, has a very interesting satirical streak to it. It's got humour in it. Very, you know, it's very uh, gallows humour at times, mm. but it's very interestingly done. Um, Queen of Diamonds, which was programmed by my, my colleague, again, Tamara, uh, is it's a film I'd heard of but never seen. I think, that's, I think that's often what happens when you work in cinema, is you hear about these wonderful films, but then when you actually, it's sometimes hard to see them. If you miss, if you're away on the crucial date of a film festival, then forget it. <laughs> you know, and, it's, and that one, again, was a real surprise to me. It was... Um, Again, I say experimenta isn't necessarily a genre I necessarily gravitate towards normally, but that one just really, really struck me. One film I was familiar with, which I, I was very keen to program, was Pyro Station, which will be the last film we're showing mm. in the season. And that's a film by uh, Youssef Shaheen, an Egyptian director. It was made in 1958. And this is, this, this is one of those films that I think anyone... Everyone should have heard of this film. Everyone should have seen it. Everyone should have heard of it if you love cinema. I think whenever you see these... You know, not, not everyone loves, oh, here are the 100 best films of all time lists and think they're a bit of a, an arbitrary way of uh, gauging quality. But I'm always surprised that that film very seldom makes it into the top 100. And obviously it's to do with things like uh, availability, accessibility, where can you see these films? But this film to me is a, it's just a masterpiece. And that's not a term I throw around a lot. Um, it's, it, it has everything in it. It's, so, it's such a passionate film. It's, such an easy, it's, it's a film that anyone can get into. It's, it's not a hard film to watch. Mm. It's, it's, it's got so much, it's a very thrilling film. It's got interesting um, characters. Some are, I mean, it's about a disabled uh, man working in, a, in Cairo station who falls in love with a, a drink seller and his passion for her and how that relationship um, continues is, is, the, is the central thrust of the film. But it also uses Cairo Station as a microcosm of Cairo. So mm. you see uh, businessmen um, just running for their trains completely past these, these impoverished communities within the station itself. But uh, Yusuf Shaheen is much more interested in their stories. And I think it works brilliantly. It's such a, it's such a wonderful film. So I hope people get a chance to see it. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of almost flipping what people expect from these kind of movies that, you know, mm. places like Cairo Station would be used as an exotic location for Tom Cruise to run through, you know, in the latest Mission Impossible. Yeah. And, and you'd see the little people in the background, but it wouldn't be about them. And this is kind of like flipping that narrative, you know, to say, actually, it's the people in the background we're interested in. Well, the people are the city as well. I mean, you can't yeah, you can't exactly. make a film about the city and not and not focus on the people who live in the city and yeah. the people. And this again, uh, that is what we wanted to show in this season is the 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 lives of people who don't normally get told on cinema and uh, are very much a part of the city. Mm. And as we've kind of been, you know, d- discussing throughout this inter- interview, it's nice that 
you can have a curatorial approach um, to programming a cinema, you know, that people can bring their ideas and say, have you seen this film? It would look great on the big screen. And I think as we, you know, now live in a world where so many of our viewing choices are dictated by an algorithm on streaming services, you know, what the uh, computer thinks you might like rather than, you know, the suggestion of someone who actually might have more experience. Um, it, you know, it's great to have uh, that approach uh, still existing in programming cinemas. You know, I mean, I used to work in a video shop and I really, you know, valued that you could go in there and the person behind the counter could say, oh, have you tried this? You know, it might be uh, something that you could enjoy if you like other films of this genre. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, again, I think the, the real key is it's great to have curators. It's great to have curators with very different tastes and with different specialisms and different interests and different backgrounds and different everything. Um, and I, th I think that really makes the, the programme sing is when you have that mix of voices uh, doing the curation. But yes, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I mean, one of my big interests is, is LGBTQ uh, representation on film. And mm. if, if I were to hop on insert name of VOD platform and looked up their gay and lesbian or their queer section, uh, anything that's been tagged, very, however arbitrarily by someone with that, um, with that label. Um, I mean, I remember Woody Allen's Manhattan used to come <laughs> up whenever I'd search it. Now, regardless of whether I like the film or not, um, there's, a, I mean, there's one lesbian character who has about two minutes of screen time in that film played by Meryl Street. That is not um, that, did, that film doesn't should not belong in that category. Mm. Um, so yes, I think the curator the, the the curator aspect for me is very important, and yeah, I think is key. <laughs> Great. Um, so what else have we got to look forward to uh, at the Barbican in coming months after this season ends? Oh wow. Okay. Um, so well, we have we we have the London um, Indian Film Festival coming up at the end of June. We have some really amazing events planned for that, including uh, a couple of events about the early works of Pratima Palmer, who's this amazing uh, filmmaker who often focuses on queer subject matter in her work, and she's coming over for a couple of screen talks after the film. So we're really looking forward to that. So um, in July we have a Splash Scratch Dunk uh, films made by hand which is a season of films uh, shot without a camera with uh, artists uh, either etching directly onto film or uh, painting onto film or using various different fluids on film and then just uh, projecting them and again you get some really interesting film uh, effects on the big screen there it's going to be a really unique program so we have films by people like um Margaret Tate or Len Lai, who some um, people may have heard of, uh, but also some much rarer stuff as well. Um, we're also just uh, confirmed, speaking of cities, in fact, that we'll be showing uh, an Olympics film um, from the 1980 Moscow Olympics called O Sport, oh. You Are Peace, <laughs> which was this Soviet era uh, depiction of the Olympic Games at, a time, at one of the most famous Olympic Games because of the boycott uh, that accompanied mm. it. And it's a really interesting and uniquely Soviet uh, view of these games. So I'm really excited to see that on the big screen as well. Again, very hard to see in a cinema. So a bit mm. of a, a rarity there. Intriguing. Cool. Well, lots to look forward to. And uh, yeah, I hope our listeners will uh, check out a lot of these suggestions. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Return to the City begins at the Barbican Cinema on Tuesday the 8th of June with a screening of Free Time with an intro by writer Will Jennings at 6.15pm. Free Time is the footage of 1950s New York edited to a contemporary jazz score. 
and was recently restored in a new print. Then on Thursday the 10th of June at 20 past 6, there's a screening of Lima Screams, the Peruvian film made in 2018, followed by the French-Chinese movie Long Day's Journey Into Night, not based on anything by Eugene O'Neill, but instead a dizzying look at love amongst derelict urban spaces in southeast China. This is a rare screening of Long Day's Journey Into Night in 3D and is very much worth checking out. And that's on Sunday the 13th of June at 2.30pm. The season continues on Tuesday the 15th with the screening of Nationalité Immigrée, a French movie about African migrants in Paris in the 1970s, Queen of Diamonds on Saturday the 19th of June at 6.15, looking at marginalised people in Las Vegas, and then finally a screening of the 1958 movie Cairo Station on Sunday the 27th of June at 3pm. You can find more info about all of these films by going to barbican.org.uk stroke what's dash on stroke 2021. Today's Clear Spot was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. Today's show was also a continuation of the programme Architecture Culture, which was broadcast monthly between autumn 2019 and summer 2020 and will hopefully return in the near future. You can find all previous episodes of Architecture Culture, including interviews with graphic novelists, architects, filmmakers, writers and artists, by going to our website, panelborders.wordpress.com. And as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.